собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello, and welcome to the SRB podcast, where in each episode we discuss Eurasian politics, culture, and history. As always, I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, Go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash Sean's Russia blog or to the podcast website, srbpodcast.org, and hit that Patreon button and join the table of ranks. A woman wearing a ball gown singing in the snow for returning ski troops. A technician's tears ruining a master recording of a new wartime song. Fresh recruits spontaneously standing and doffing their caps to a new song, thereby creating a new wartime anthem. The Soviet songs of World War II inspired, touched, and comforted citizens and soldiers alike. They also left the cultural legacy, which reflected both the hearts of the individuals fighting as well as the narrative of the party and state in bringing the nation to victory. To get an in-depth look at Soviet World War II songs and their importance to the war effort, I turn to Suzanne Ament. Suzanne Ament is an associate professor of history at Radford University. She's the author of Sing to Victory, Song in Soviet Society During World War II, published by Academic Studies Press. Here's Suzanne Ament. So um, I thought I, I, we would start our conversation by just first having you uh, introduce yourself. Okay. My name is Suzanne Ament, and I am the Russianist at Radford University in Southwest Virginia. We're about uh, half an hour from Roanoke, Virginia, so people know where we're placed. I also teach world history. And uh, my interest in research has always been about uh, society and music in Russia. So I've done work on uh, the book we're going to talk about today, and also Russian revolutionary songs, and a bard duo called Ivashenko Vasiliev, and another couple of articles on music in general and related to Russia and its culture. Now, you do have this new book, Sing to Victory, Song in Soviet Society During World War II. Uh, how did you get interested in, in the songs of World War II? Uh, I first heard them when I was an uh, undergraduate student in Leningrad back in 1981. And a, a reader, uh, a Russian that was helping me do assignments for my classes, uh, one of his friends would sing these songs. And I couldn't believe they were war songs, first of all. They were so lyrical and so beautiful. But that doesn't make sense that they're war songs. But I kind of left it at that point. And then when I was looking for a dissertation topic, uh, my advisor, Alexander Rabinowich, and I decided that this was a good topic for research, in part because I could still use oral history at that point. And my other interests in Russian revolutionary songs didn't really bode well for oral history at that time. So um, we went with that, and we both talked about how the songs were beautiful, and we, all, we both recognized that. 
And my original hypothesis was that these were done by kind of the grassroots of the Soviet society during the war. And I came to prove myself completely wrong on that point, uh, but found something even more interesting, which was that the society really united around these songs, whether they were whether it was political or cultural or social, uh, the songs were all pretty well accepted by every facet of society. So that's how I came onto the topic. Yeah, and they continue to have the great legacy today, which which we'll talk about. Um, but one thing I wanted to talk about is you as a historian and your experience as a historian, because in your acknowledgments, and I, I always read the acknowledgments because you get lots of information about people's personal life and you know who they know, who their friends are, and what their sometimes their experience. And one of the things that you write. Um, is I must acknowledge here my wonderful yellow Labrador seeing eye dog, Sparkle, who was with me throughout the Moscow research and subsequent dogs, Quinny, Nikita, and Ula, who literally led me through thick and thin. Sparkle especially deserves recognition for all her heart, for all her effort as the first American guide dog to live in the USSR. Now, this in itself is really fascinating because you know, I don't know anything about uh, the experience of blindness in Russia, seeing eye dogs. Um, so t- can you talk about your experience of doing research blind and s- having a seeing eye dog in the USSR and how that has shaped you as a historian? Oh, sure. Um, I think if I were a pragmatic person back in the, the younger days, I would have realized that as a blind person, I probably should have done something that a language that was in Latin alphabet. but um, but that isn't how I am. So I loved Russia and I loved the music and I loved the people. And so I just kept going, even though it, it proves even today quite a bit of a hardship to do research because I need somebody to read to me. And that's not always easy to find. So my year uh, doing dissertation research, I have to credit not only the dog, but uh, Dr. Barbara Allen went with me as my assistant. And we were over there for nine, 10 months. And we had, we had a, a deal that said, if either one of us can't take it anymore, we're going to go home. And we never quite reached that point. There were a few times, but uh, Sparkle, the guide dog, got a lot of attention because there was really, although the Soviet Union had a guide dog school, and I'm trying to do some research on that now. Um, yeah, and, uh, but they didn't really have very many dogs in the cities. So when we were trying to get into libraries and archives and, uh, the, the the newly founded McDonald's at the time, uh, lots of questioning and the, the Metro, we had to have a special letter from our, from our conservatory uh, sponsors to get on the Metro with the dog at all. And then we got challenged most of the time. So it was that in itself is its own story. And, and poor Sparkle got shocked by a trolley bus. She we got attacked by a pack of wild dogs. Um, there was glass everywhere. So luckily, she didn't cut her feet. And if anybody was in the Soviet Union back in the day, you will remember that it was not an easy place to get around. And uh, so Sparkle did a great job, as did Barbara. So, so without the two of them, I don't think this research would have gotten done. And how about getting getting the getting Sparkle into the Soviet Union? Uh, that really wasn't so much of a problem. Uh, we did we did have to have international health certificates and things like that, but there was no quarantine like there is in England because they do have rabies there. So that, that's the reason why the quarantines usually exist. Uh, we also had a sponsorship from Purina and IREX in the day 
um, Purina sent them like a 500 pound sack of dog food and they had to split it up and send it to the embassy. So it was, it, the story in itself is, is quite fun. You know, it's amazing that we did what we did. And, and, and so how does this, when you, when you approach subjects like, you know, like songs, uh, or even doing your research over the years, how has this experience of, you know, having somebody as a research assistant assisting you in doing the work since, you know, doing history is, is mostly a textual affair. And even your project, it's, it's very heavily, heavy on archival work, et cetera. So how do you manage that? Or how does that influence you? Uh, it, it is tough because a lot of times we'd be in the archive and Barbara would be flipping through things, trying to see what was what, and she wouldn't be able to read me everything because we'd never get through it all. You know, it takes longer to read out loud. So she would only read me things that looked relevant and thank the Lord that the, the archives were willing to make copies for us because we never would have been able to sit and take notes long enough. I brought a stack full of probably two feet high papers from the Segali that was at the time the where we were mostly. Um, the other thing I think that has happened is that I do try to go to oral history. And that and so that's one of the things that I can do by myself without too much help. And um, and I was very lucky to talk to a lot of different people. Um, I can't remember the number at this point, probably 20 different interviews, uh, two of the composers and two of the poets that were still alive and other people that had been in brigades and uh, had been singers, and then some others that were just willing to talk to me about their experiences during wartime as workers, or usually young workers, because at this point they were older. But What, what was the importance of, of music, in not just in Russian life, but especially during wartime? Uh, I think that, at least compared to Americans, Russians tend to perform music more as an mm -hmm. average activity. I think that uh, it may or may not be true today. I haven't been back much lately, so I don't know. But but at least at the time, people would sing a lot. They would sing at parties, you know, the, the, even the Russian parties in the U.S. that you go to Slavic departments and you have people have a little bit to drink and they'd be all singing and you know, maybe not in tune, maybe, maybe, maybe good. But, um, but music was something that did play a part in life generally. And, and I think more for the average person than maybe in our culture. Um, we listen more than we sing, I think. Uh, but the other thing about wartime, um, the songs, and in fact, the, the official uh, composers unions and the, the official propaganda was promoting song early in the war because it was very portable and it was something that you didn't need a lot of equipment for necessarily. You could have instrumentation or an orchestra or you could simply have a one single person singing to another one. And so the, the songs actually were promoted over other forms of music in the first year and a half of the war or so. And even the large kind of symphonic composers like Shostakovich and Miaskovsky and some others were encouraged to write songs, which is something they didn't usually do. Let's listen to, to one of the most popular and well-known songs, Katusha. When, uh, have you introduced, uh, Kat this is Katusha, it's, it's sung by uh, Tamara Simianskaya. Okay, Katusha is an interesting song because it was actually written before the war started, at least in the Soviet Union, um, probably actually before 39, I think it was written in 37 or 38, and I think it's referring actually to the um, border wars with, with uh, China, actually, and, the, and Hulk and Gull and Japan and that, that whole side of the Asian um, 
conflicts, the small conflicts that happened. Um, Katyusha, though, got uh, once the Soviet Nazi Soviet Pact was signed, everything disappeared that was anti-fascist or anti-Japan or anti-German, and uh, so Katyusha disappeared for a while. But when the war started, it was brought back, and so it's about a girl who's waiting for her boyfriend lover, who's the border guard. Uh, and she's sending the the uh, falcon off, the eagle off, to to tell him that she misses him and that she'll guard their love while he guards the homeland. So that's the theme of the original song. And it's um so, so the, and then during the war, what happened is that people started making different versions of it, saying, "Heck, I'm not going to stand on the riverbank. I'm going to go off and be a partisan or a nurse." Or the soldier would answer, "Yes, I'm going to I'm going to come back to you, and I'm going to guard our homeland so I can come back and be free and that kind of thing." So there were many many versions of that song. And the other thing to note about Katusha is that it is probably one of the most known songs by the American audiences. And I think that was because there was some interaction, there was a lot of exchange because we were allies at the time that certain songs were sent to the United States to be performed. And this was one of them. One of the things I wanted to, when I was 
reading the book and and then of course listening to some of these songs one of the things and and I think you 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 kind of you alluded to it a few minutes ago and that is I expected a lot of these songs just to be a guitar or something a very simple instrumentation and and not a, a, an orchestra sound um it, are there and are there a is there a genre of these songs that are just a simple kind of bard songs? I think the thing is, is that these can be done either way um, with a few exceptions. And the, probably the biggest exception is the, the sacred war, the kind of the anthem of the war that got started very early. And that one would be very hard to do as a, as a bard piece. It would be more of a choir piece or, or orchestrated piece or something like that. But, uh, but, Katusha could be sung either way. And I play guitar and sing and I do it with the guitar and I've been at picnics and things in the Soviet Union in the day and had Americans and Russians all dancing to Katusha, you know, and it's just, it was a great, great memory and a great unifying uh, uh, experience really. Um, so you can do a lot of them in a lot of different forms uh, and Katusha and some of the others, like the the dugout in the dugout, which I think we're going to hear later, and then maybe the uh, the dark night and some others. Um, some of them were done in films, and so they have uh, a lot behind them. There are a lot of planning behind how they were performed in certain contexts, and in other contexts, people just sang them to each other. The other thing I wanted to say about Katusha was that the rocket gets named the the mortar rocket, the multi rocket launcher uh, Katusha, famous in the Soviet. Uh, military war effort. Uh, the only thing I don't know, I'm sure that there's a connection between the two names, but how that happened, I don't know. And I would love to know that. It's something I've never been able to uh, corroborate in the way that I'd like to historically as to how that all happened. But Katusha the Rocket, Katusha the Song, um, there are songs about the soldiers uh, asking Katusha to, you know, beat the enemy for them, like shoot them in the butt and things like that. So, so and there's some pretty crude ones too, some versions of things, but, um, but, uh, and I haven't really researched too much of those. I kind of stuck with the canon that survived, although I talk about the ones that don't, but um, the ones that interest me the most are the ones that lasted. Um, now, the other thing about Katusha is that it's sung by a woman. Were there a lot of songs sung by women or what's the gender breakdown? Definitely, definitely. The brigades, um, the people that were in the films, of course, you had actors and actresses, those who went out to perform in the, they would send theater brigades or different theaters would send their brigades to the front, or they would even put together these kind of potpourri brigades that would have all kinds of fa famous and not so famous folks in them. And they would have an, an MC and they would have um, maybe skits or they might have jugglers. And they'd have singers, they might have a ballet dancer or a dance pair. So these brigades would be really multifaceted and multi-genred. And song would be a part of all of them, but it wasn't necessarily just song. Um, but song was the basic. And so if you couldn't do all those other things, song would be done. And, and then the actresses would, I have a picture of one of the women I interviewed in a ball gown in the snow singing to the ski troops going off in the north. And you know, just amazing how you know she would put that ball gown on and do makeup and the whole thing. And so the more they could do that, the more they would. And uh, 
what she also remembers his daughter being in this white dress and they started strafing and he was scared that she'd be a target and luckily she survived. So now um, there are hundreds of these songs. Um, and, and one of the things you note is that as the war progressed, the themes of the songs also changed. So what type of themes were uh, dealt with addressed in these songs? Well, initially, you have what you might expect, kind of the send-off to war, the good, the goodbyes, the farewells, some, maybe some lively marching tunes, that kind of thing. Um, farewell to cities and towns, or the, the mother saw her son off is a couple of examples. And, though, and there are actually some farewells to cities as well. There's one that talks about um, farewell to Leningrad, and there's one uh, saying goodbye to the Dnieper and Kiev and, and these kinds of things. So that, that's kind of the first round. And then as the war got worse in 41, 42, you start to hear more lyrical songs and it seems kind of counterintuitive. You think they want to fight harder. But what the composers and poets that were at the front and visited the front or came came back and forth would say is that the soldiers don't want to be told how they have to beat the fascists and how they have to be tough because they're doing it every day. And so they need something to remind them of home and the people that love them and give them strength. And so that's how I think some of these songs got written was for that. Now, all the way through the war, there are songs that celebrate units and those are not particularly famous. They don't last because they're very specific in their topic for the people in that particular unit or that uh, particular division. But nevertheless, these lyrical songs do last. And then there's some other themes about, oh, soldiers being uh, talking about their rifles or their great coats or their uh, canteens as their best friend. And then there are also songs about friendship. And one of the most famous is Claudio Shulzhenko's Devaiza uh, Kurim, which means let's have a smoke. And that one is, has a little bit of jazzy sound in it too, which is another interesting element that um, sort of the enjoyment of music isn't just the folk lyric or the the uh, kind of anthem-like song of, of, of the sacred war, but there were some jazzy ones too, so, uh, or what we might think of as kind of pre-jazz or some kind of thing, so. Uh, and then toward the end, the toward, toward the end of the war, uh, there's a change that happens, I think, um, that the the greater or bigger musical works come back in, into play much more. And so song takes on a different role. It takes on the role of reflection. It isn't the celebratory um, kind of pomp and circumstance of victory. It's more of the reflection of victory and the reflection of loss and um, coming home finally after so long and wondering what would, what would you find when you got home and that kind of thing. So song had a very different sound at the end of the war. Now there were some satirical songs all the way through a kind of a, against the enemy and sort of lighthearted sort of let's march on. And we took Brest. Now let's get to Warsaw. Now let's get to Berlin and that kind of thing. So there's a real mix of genre and a real mix of theme as well. I mean, that's fascinating that at the end of the war, you have more of this reflection and memorialization uh, and and mourning, I guess, and, and to a certain extent, then yes, I think it's their grieving. Yeah, yeah, that's that's really fascinating. Um, you know, because I one would expect, and you would have this great kind of victorious, uh, you know, themes uh, as as the the main theme, but that that's a fascinating aspect of of you know this kind of mourning the 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 losses. 
Now there is one song that is Den Pabiedi, which you hear a lot um, contemporarily. I don't know when that was written. I've never been able to find the evidence of that. Another thing that I'd like to corroborate, but I, that would be the only one I could think of that was really sort of the pomp and circumstance. But I kind of suspect it was written after the war. And I did stick to, I did stick in my book to songs, either pre-war songs that were adopted into the war or war songs that were composed during the war. So I didn't go beyond that. All right. Well, let's listen to one more, uh, an, the next song, um, which is In the Dugout. This is by, this is being sung by Ephraim Flax. Um, can you please uh, introduce this song? This is an amazing song. Um, it is a song that got criticized quite a bit, and there was a lot of censorship about these songs too. So remember, we are dealing with the agate prop units and the, the censorship of the party at the same time that these songs are coming out. Um, this one was created uh, by a poet who was at the front as a correspondent, and he wrote the lyrics to his wife in a letter. And his composer friend came by in a couple of months and said, give me a text to a song. I need a text. I need to write a song. And, and the guy said, I don't have anything. You know, I don't have a text for you. He said, well, you got to give me something. So he ended up giving him this little short kind of two stanza poem. And he went away and he came back and brought the song back to the newspaper office down in the, I think it was on the Southern front, if I remember right. Uh, and they played it and everybody said, this is great. And they started singing it. And then it had to go back to the composers unions and the poets unions and get approved. And it was, it was rejected because it had a line in it that said, you're so far away from me, but I'm only four steps from death. And the four steps, one of my uh, informants informed me was, you step out of the dugout one, two, and you step into the snow three, four, and you get shot, you know? <laughs> so it was your four steps from death, but you know, you're so far away from me. And that that line was said to be, oh, oh, demoralizing and horrible. But the, but all the, the arguers for it said, no, no, it's, it really is what the soldiers are dealing with and they know the truth. And there was actually a letter written. We know what, what we're dealing with. We know the truth of this, you know, so don't take it away from us. And the, the rumor has it. And again, I can't corroborate it that someone took the song to Stalin who then approved it. So again, I would love to find, I'd love somebody out there to come up with that document that said Stalin put his okay on that song. But. All right. Well, let's listen to a bit of this one. Тесный печурки огонь На поленьях смола, как слеза И поет мне в землянке гармонь Про улыбку твою и глаза Про тебя мне шептали кусты Белоснежных полях под Москвой Я хочу, чтобы слышала ты Как тоскует мой голос живой Теперь далеко, далеко 
Между нами снега и снега. До тебя мне дойти нелегко, А до смерти четыре шага. Ой, гармоник обдюгом на зло, Заплутавшее счастье зови. Мне в холодной землянке тепло, Твоей негасимой любви. Мне в холодной землянке тепло, А твоей негасимой любви. Now, this song is is one that um, I would, you know, assume be be the type of song, war songs, in the sense of the instrumentation is is easily replicated. Um, you know, it deals directly with the themes of, you know, the soldiers on the ground. Um, is there anything you else you could say about this song? Uh, I think um, it has it has. The, the true ring that there is something hard here, that there's something difficult and that there's really pain involved in it. And yet the, the strength of the human bond is also de depicted here, that that's what's really important is the human link, not the fight or the, the cold or the, the battle, but the human link that people have with each other. And I think that's something that these songs can often put forward that, maybe can't be said in other ways. Now let's talk about how these songs, you know, the people who wrote them and composed these songs, who, who, how, talk a bit about the process and, and how uh, this was done. Because one of the things that I, I was really um, not so much surprised, but certainly struck by was the amount of resources the Soviet government poured into the, the creation of these songs. Yes, and I think that was, like I told you, my first hypothesis was these are all grassroots songs, and they're not. You know, they were, they were definitely created in the same vein as the 30s kind of style of uh, the, the composers and poets unions and theater unions and all these different creative unions that were created by Stalin in the early 30s. But they did have control, and they were very much uh, a part of the real system of Soviet culture. And yet they were able to create these songs in them. And, and so the, the people that are working at that are the professional poets and composers who had been approved and vetted and come through conservatories or through uh, literary training and that kind of thing. Um, some of them were songwriters before the war. Some of them take it up as, as they do. Um, it's, it's a pair usually. There's a few exceptions, but it's usually a, a composer that writes the music and a poet that writes the lyrics. And they would get together and they would sign contracts and they would have, you know, orders for so many songs or so many uh, creations of things. And so it was a very much of, a, of, a, of the way they earned their living as well. So it's, it's something that didn't really change in that regard. But, uh, and as we are used to kind of singer songwriter stuff in this country, at least from my generation forward, you know, it's, it really isn't that it's the, it's more of the, the, uh, the duo working together. And so I also was trying to look and see how did people choose who to work with and that kind of thing. And some of it I was able to depict 
other things I think are just lost to time. You don't, you don't know why did one person like the other one better than the other one? You know, sort of how did you choose who to work with? But, um, but that was sort of the, the idea of the, of who did it was definitely in the context of the Soviet cultural milieu of, and structure, which meant that the party was on top and could always stop something. Um, and that the, the various, uh, kind of commissions and things would review songs and would critique them. They'd have big um, song. They had a couple of song conferences during the war where they uh, all got together. And then this would include publishers and um, composers and poets and performers, even sometimes that would come and talk about what, what was needed and what could be corrected and what should be done. So they were really uh, professionals about this in a lot of ways, you know, that you don't expect when you, start out with this yeah and the, the other thing you noticed that there were contests where you would have these competitions so how, how did that work that could be at kind of any level and probably the most famous competition was for the new soviet anthem and what i don't know for sure is how how rigged these were but you know it's hard to sell but you could have contests even at a local level for a folk song and remember uh, that during the war, the Soviet Union turned back towards the church, towards the, the Russian culture, the history of Russia, and the strengths of Russia in the past. So to promote Russian folk music was also a part of that. So that in 43, 44, there were a lot of Russian folk choirs going out and, and people were producing songs and competing. The choirs who would compete with each other and get awards and that kind of thing. And again, I think that's... Uh, a way to incentivize people, but it was also um, kind of a uh, an honor to be able to create and to perform for the for the audiences that would come out. Now, these songs are are created within this very large, multi layered apparatus of the Soviet culture industry, um, but at the same time, they're also created in the context of mass media. Uh, you know, the distribution of newspapers, journals, books, and also radio. So t talk about the way these were used to get these songs out to Soviet society and to the front. The the newspaper level, you have your central newspapers, and then you'd have, say, your, your front newspaper, your division newspapers, and they would often print texts of songs, at least, and sometimes musical notes as well. So so for the military, you could you could find out about a new song in your in your division newspaper, for example. In the the um, and the the again the central papers would be going back to Siberia to the to the working front, which was also as important. And there were songs about the labor front as well, and so people could learn the songs that way. Um, you also had the brigades going out and singing. And and some of that was done locally that say you were in Moscow and you would be, say you worked at a theater and you would be recruited to be in a brigade and you would go and do three or four concerts a day. Um, the amazing thing was that went on in Leningrad as well during the siege. And that was uh, kind of amazing. The radio committee was sort of the source and the, the grounding of organizing the arts, especially music in the beginning of the siege and the radio committee, people would, would go out and, and they would produce a, a program and try to put things on the air for the, the listeners that could still um, hear them. And one of the most touching stories I read in a memoir, I think it was, 
a mother and daughter were just sort of giving up. And they'd written this letter to um, Irma Yaldzum, which was one of the, she was one of the current singers of the day. And the, their letter said to her that we'd get kind of just decided to go to sleep. And that was, that was it. There was no radio. There was no sound. And it was cold. And then they heard this scratching sound and they heard uh, Irma Petrovna's, or Petrovich's, you know, voice on the, on the radio. And her daughter jumped up and said, mother, it's life. This is life. Yeah, it's it's pretty. It can, it's tear jerking sometimes. Yeah, I would I would imagine the 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 relationship to the the song, the music, and and what it gave to people hearing them um, was was quite profound. Uh, and 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 what is do you have? What was the sense of how did the public, the the soldiers, you know, what role did this music play in their life? My sense is that this was one of the most important things that brought them solace and made them realize that people were caring about them because these brigades would come. And there are cases of people trying to go out and find flowers for the female singers or the brigade members, uh, or just how they would write letters back saying how much this meant to them. And that was true in the labor front as well, because there were, I think it was um, uh, Zakharov, who was a, he was a composer a folk kind of themed music, but also he had a choir. And they went on like a 10 or 12 month tour all over Siberia and Eastern Russia uh, on a train. And they lived on the train the whole 10 months and would perform for all these different cities and, and factories as well as the front itself. So, um, so there, there was a lot going on musically and the, the radio and film also was another medium that came up the, the dark night, one of the most famous songs sung by Mark Berness. Um, was produced in, in uh, I think it was in Tashkent. And then the film went all over the country during the, well, the, the film, Devab Baitsaw, The Two Soldiers, which you can still see today. And The Dark Knight was a song added into it after the fact that they said, we need a song for this film. You know, so they put that one in. Uh, you know, given given the 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 love of these songs um, amongst, you know, the public, uh, did, did you, what about, the, com- the composition of songs that weren't from, you know, artists and, and writers that are connected to the, the artist unions and, and the Soviet culture system. Are, are there songs that floated up from below to become popularized? Uh, I don't think to the degree that the, um, the canon, we'll call it that just for simplicity's sake, the ones that last. I don't think there's that many that came from the amateur grounds. But after the war, a lot of musicologists went out and collected uh, what you'd think of as what had been produced by the grassroots, if you would. And there were a lot of a lot of things. Some of them were done to the verses of the more popular songs. So they would write lyrics to them. But there were also composers that created things uh, themselves or just created a song for themselves or uh, took a text from the newspaper and made a version uh, of music for it. Like they didn't know the the actual music that had been produced at the center, but they knew that they liked the text, so they put it to a tune that they made up. So there was a lot of that that went on. Whether that is what sort of lasted, I don't think so. But uh, nevertheless, people's creativity went into music as well, not just the not just the professionals. And when when were when was this done? This these musicologists when did they go out and do this? Uh, I think the couple of the the sources I had started in forty six and forty seven up into the the late forties, 
collecting these things. Uh, if And if you think of sort of the broader uh, post-war era, the war sort of gets pushed aside after 48 or so, and people are not supposed to talk about it and not supposed to you know, really reminisce about it much. They kind of crack down on the veterans groups and things that were emerging, the people that were trying to kind of stay connected in one way or another. And I haven't studied that in depth, but I've read about it. And um, I think that that sort of, sort of there was a the big push for that in the first few years. And then it kind of dropped away, unfortunately, because it would have been great to have that next decade probably to collect things up. The fact that these are, a, you know, majority of the, the ones that we have and are popular are created from above. At the same time, you know, they they seem to still capture an essence of people's lives during the war, right? They they certainly represent it. Can you talk about that, how that connection was? I'm trying to tr- figure out how to how to state this question. I think I think I think what you're getting at. I think that the uh, created from above part came from the grassroots saying this is what we need and their letters and and notes and newspaper kind of to the editor kind of things saying we want songs about home we want to hear about our home life and yes the creation of these things is idealistic like the the reality was that many of these guys would go home and they wouldn't find their wives or um, they would come back disabled and not be accepted or, you know, other truths are, are truly there. The songs don't talk about those truths. They talk about the ideal truth. But that ideal truth let people have the strength, stamina, courage, I don't know what word it is, to be able to go on and do what they had to do in the face of this war. And they were obedient to that war in a certain way. They, they knew they had to do it. I don't think they wanted to do it, but they knew they had to. And I, I think that's another thing that we may be not seeing in our co- country so much these days. That this, there's, there are factions that will, will sacrifice, but there are others that won't. You know. What is your favorite song? Um, there's a lot of them, but one of them that I really like is what's called the Accidental Waltz. And it was kind of, um, I've read a lot of different stories about people in fact i just read one the other day from a friend of mine who had a little memoir on uh, facebook about her father and i never knew this about him he was a musician he was at the war but he never really played at one point i think it was in poland he found a piano and was able to play and that's the kind of thing that this song talks about that two people meet and they're able to have this waltz together and they're 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 lonely they miss their families and their 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 lives and they're off. They're actually not in the Soviet Union. I think at that time, I think it's a little bit later in the war. Uh, and so it's called the accidental waltz. It's also been named the officer's waltz as well. And I don't know quite how that change happened. One of the things I like about it, and I don't sing this song, it's a hard one to sing. Um, but I met the composer of it, Lev Oshanin, who is just one of the most kind receptions I've ever received, you know, with he and his wife taking us to their dacha in Peridelkino and, you know, and just spending the day talking about the war and their past and their lives then. And um, so, it, so it means a lot for me that way too. All right. Well, let's, let's listen to a bit of it.
знакомую музыку вальса Услыхал в тишине городка Утро зовет Снова в поход Хорошо, что я встретился с вами Проходя мимо ваших ворот Хоть я с вами совсем не знаком И далеко отсюда мой дом Но мне кажется снова Я вы дома родного в этом зале большом и как будто вдвоем, так скажите хоть слово, сам не знаю о чем. Совсем не знаком И далеко отсюда мой дом Но мне кажется снова Я у дома родного В этом зале большом И как будто вдвоем Так скажите под слово Сам не знаю о чем Сам не знаю о чем is there anything else you could add about this song? Uh, I mentioned the sort of jazzy sound. I think that is a good representation of that. Um, and Lev Ashanin mentioned that they had been on a train after they, he and his uh, poet friend had composed it. And um, they got to a stop and they heard the song playing already. Somehow it jumped. As he said, it jumped the train. <laughs> and that was a fun story to hear. Um, what place does do these songs have with, you know, you did an oral history and interviewed people about their, these songs. Uh, what place do they have in their memory of, of the war and, but also their, you know, their daily life of and living in Soviet society? Let's see. I was there at the very end of the Soviet union and I did some pilot studies with, with Russians who are in the U S as well. So the kind of a mix of those, um, most of them have the feeling that, when we started talking about the war, in fact, I think 201, they said this was hell and they hoped it never happened again. I mean, that was just a bottom line right there, that this was horrible. But the songs and the victory gave them something that was life-shaping to them, that, that they had participated in something that overthrew evil in their, in their basically use that word pretty often. Um, whether they sang the songs very much in their current life, I'm not sure, but they recognize them as a symbol of that time and of, that, of their participation in that. Most of them didn't think they did anything heroic. I think many of them did, but they claimed that they did not. Um, I think one of the most interesting ones was a woman who had emigrated. She was Jewish. She uh, spoke of hating the Soviet Union. But when I started asking her about songs, she actually named the Sacred War as one of her favorites, which was the anthem of the Soviet Union during the war. 
And she actually cried when she started talking about it. So that wasn't the symbol of the party or the politics. It was the symbol of the people and the land and the, the effort that they all had put together to, to save themselves from what they saw as, as, as horrible. Now, I had another guy telling me that he'd never heard any music during the war at all, and there was no music. So his take on it was it was so bad that there couldn't have been music because music is a good thing. So. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, I would imagine a lot of people have mixed feelings about this because usually in times of, you know, death, music is, is taboo. Um, so, you know, I could imagine this, this kind of memory, like, no, 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 we just didn't have this because it's, it's hard to comprehend something that could, that is usually associated with joy. Um, now, you know, I, when I was looking through the types of, you know, finding some songs to listen to, I, I noticed that, uh, collections of these songs were repeatedly released around anniversaries of the war. You know, there was a big collection in the 30th anniversary. There's certainly a huge collection for the 50th anniversary. Um, can you talk a bit about how these songs were kept alive as part of a, a Soviet culture? Uh, definitely. I think the um, part of that had to do with um, sort of the, the, the re-upping of the image of the war in the 70s. And I think that Nina Tumarkin's book really described that well. Um, and so that the idea would be that we will bring these forward. We will get veterans to come to school kids. We will teach the songs in the pioneer camps, you know, so that, that even, even people that were younger than me by far at the time I was doing this research knew these songs, you know, they, they would uh, ask me what my favorite one was. And I, uh, you know, uh, when I came back um, through the airport and the, the Tamorznia, the border guards, the, uh, what do you call it? Customs. He, uh, he said, "What's your? What are you doing here?" And I said, oh, "I'm I'm a graduate student studying war songs." He said, "What's your favorite one?" And I said, "I said, well, I think right now it's the Dark Knight." He said, "Oh, Chesna Slova, at the Mayotoja." He said, "Go ahead, you know, pass by, you know, go on." <laughs> so you know, he was a young guy too. He was not, you know, he was uh, probably younger than I was at the time. But uh, the other the other interesting thing I stumbled upon. Um, a kind of a scientist. He was an interesting guy. He's a musician, but he also, he's passed away now, but he was a, a, an engineer as well. And he was talking about the idea that, that uh, music has an effect on the body. And there's a lot of research out there now in the last, say, 20, 30 years about how that happens. And that music can actually, what they call it, the body, it entrains the body. So music therapists will use this to uh, not only just sort of emotionally calm people, but it actually supposedly has a physical effect on people. So my hypothesis is that a lot of the people that actually knew the songs during the war experienced them in a time of great stress and the body's under stress, the mind's under stress. And the song gave them, even if it was a tiny bit, some respite from that. And their bodies relaxed, maybe their blood pressure went down. And so according to this this uh, theory of that, that this uh, the music entrainment, when they heard that song again, that would happen again, that they would, their blood pressure would drop their, you know, that sort of thing. They didn't know it. It wasn't something they were conscious of. And so trying to understand how did these songs last? Some of it is definitely promotion by the state and, and in the schools and in the that kind of thing. But some of it may just literally be that those songs were a lifeline at the time and they didn't even realize how much it affected their life in very, very basic ways. 
even heartbeat, heart rate, blood pressure, that kind of thing. So I can't prove it, but. <laughs> right. No, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, as a side note, I mean, I'm interested in the, the effects of, you know, war and trauma, you know, on the body, on the mind. And, and for me, this makes total sense. Like I buy this argument. <laughs> I don't need much convincing for this to, to buy this argument. Um, so what about today? Uh, because, you know, again, doing a search on, on the internet in Russian, you find, especially of course this month in May, you find a lot of, of reporting, uh, and, and about these songs and the revival of these songs. So what, what role do they play in, in the memory of the war today? Well, I think, I mean, they are part and parcel of the war memory. I mean, that, that is, that is proof positive that they are a legacy from the war. Um, and maybe maybe they're viewed today by those who are promoting that specifically for maybe reasons to show the power of Russia or something like that. I don't know exactly, but uh, I think it I think it it does establish the truth of this legacy uh, for sure because they are brought back. Um, and the fact is that they're nice songs. A lot of them are really they're maybe simple. They're maybe not you know sort of some complex thing. They express, a lot of them express good emotion or something about love or connection and family and that kind of thing, which is always appealing to people. So I think there's kind of multi layers of what these songs are up to now, you know, what they're doing now. And, um, and now it's the 75th anniversary, right, this year. And, uh, and so there's a whole channel actually dedicated to World War II movies, shows, you know, music, et cetera, that was started by, I guess, Channel One started it as a, as a, a new um, kind of year-long project to honor the war and the victory that went on. And of course, now I think some of the rest of the world has realized how much the, so especially America, has started to realize what the Soviet Union did for the war effort. And without it, we would have probably been sunk, you know. And yes, we did. We we did help them for sure. No, no doubt about that. But um, but but they were the ones who lost the twenty some odd million. You know. And finally, um, you you know, there are many books about and and more interesting ones coming out about the Soviet experience of the war. Um, you looking at the war through songs. How do you understand the war? By, by listening to these songs and delving into how they were created and distributed? I suppose it goes back to that concept that the song was a lifeline for people in a time that was really pretty unimaginable to me, horrific. I mean, there's, I don't know anything close in my life that's come even close to being what those people experienced, whether they were in the factories working six, seven days a week and, you know, the, the let alone the front or the siege of Leningrad or, you know, the horrors of Stalingrad or any, any of those things. I can't, I, I can't myself even imagine them, but these songs gave people something to hold on to something to relax with something to cry over. They, there are different stories about people that didn't ever cry. And these soldiers would cry when the brigades would sing, you know, that they would, they would let their emotions come out of them. So they would be human or they were humanizing in a time that was dehumanizing. And I think that's what's ultimately the truth behind them. That was Susanna Ment, an associate professor of history at Radford University. She's the author of Sing to Victory, 
Song in Soviet Society During World War II, published by Academic Studies Press. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you enjoyed this podcast and want to help support it, please take a moment to share it on Facebook and Twitter, like my Facebook page, Sean's Russia Blog, write a review, or recommend the show to your friends. The SRB podcast comes cheap, but it is not free to make. You can help support it by joining the table of ranks at srbpodcast.org. Thanks to all my high excellencies, high wellborns, and noblenesses for your continued patronage. And you can find past shows on iTunes and SoundCloud, or you can download them directly from srbpodcast.org as well. Until next time, bye. Только пули свистят по степи, Только ветер гудит в проводах, Тускло звезды мерцают. В темную ночь ты, любимая, знаю, не спишь, И у детской кроватки тайком Ты слезу утираю. Как я люблю глубину твоих ласковых глаз. Как я хочу к ним прижаться теперь губами. Темная ночь разделяет любимая нас. И тревожная черная сеть Пролегала между нами. Верю в тебя, дорогую подругу мою, Эта вера от пули меня Темной ночью хранила. Радостно мне, я спокоен в смертельном бою, Знаю, встретишь с любовью меня, Чтоб со мной не случилось. Смерть не страшна, с ней встречались не раз мы в степи. Вот и теперь. Надо мною она кружится. Ты меня ждешь, и у детской кроватки не спишь. И поэтому знаю со мной, ничего не
Ничего не случится.